0: seated. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Luke chapter 2, and specifically I'm going to be reading through verses 41 through 52 as we continue on in the gospel according to Luke. There are all sorts of legends and traditions uh, about the childhood of Jesus. Uh, Many people made things up in the years after the closing of the canon, Uh, trying to fill in the blank of what happened between uh, Jesus' birth and circumcision and then when he began his earthly ministry when he was roughly 30 years of age. Uh, But there's only one account given in the Bible, which actually and accurately portrays some or a little window uh, into Christ's early childhood, and that's the one given to us here by Luke. So as we read this, let's uh, be thinking about what it must have been like uh, to be the parents of the Savior of mankind. But uh, before we read this word, let's seek the face of God and ask for his blessing. God, our gracious Father, I pray now, Lord, that you would help me to read your word aright and then to proclaim it to your people. This is the message of life given so that men might come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that that would happen today, that anybody who does not know you, that they would seek trying to save themselves by their own efforts. We know that's impossible. And instead, they would set aside all of their attempts at self-righteousness and flee instead to Christ. May we, O Lord, also learn from the example of Christ in his boyhood, especially when it comes to being diligent about uh, listening to the teaching of the Word and being willing to engage heartily. In discussions of the things of faith and life. May that be our heart's delight, as it was the young Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 2 and verses 41 through 52. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. When they had finished the days as they returned, the boy, Jesus, lingered in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and sought him amongst their relatives and acquaintances. So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now, so it was that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. and in favor with God and men. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. While I have never actually flown to Paris without realizing that I'd left one of my children behind, I have to admit, I have lost track of a child. Now, perhaps the most memorable time was when we were watching a show in South Carolina, in Myrtle Beach, and an irate woman approached us holding the hand of our youngest daughter. Uh, whom we hadn't realized had left the area. Uh, she saw our surprised faces, and she asked, Is this your child? Uh, to which we sheepishly answered. We said, Why, oh, yes, thank you so much. But I will never forget the next sentence that came out of her mouth. It was, It's an alligator farm! <laughs> so, don't judge us. Uh, she is still here and with us today. It was Graham? All right. Okay, now you can judge us. I can't even remember which of my children is which. So yes, I did lose my son in an alligator farm. He is still alive, though. And at Bob Jones, we can offer proof of life if you need. But anyway, but usually it doesn't go that quickly. It's not one second you suddenly realize that your child's gone, and the next second somebody brings them up and says, is this your child? Uh, You think you know exactly where they are all the time and then uh, you know you're thinking to yourself well of course i know where they are my my spouse has them and then your spouse comes to you and says do you have so-and-so and suddenly you realize oh no i don't know where they are they aren't there they can't be far." you reason so what do you do you search around a little and still you cannot find your child. And And it's usually at that moment (laughs) that the the panic begins to to set in. You begin to become a little more deliberate in your searching. You begin to run from place to place, asking strangers if they've seen your child. And eventually, usually all the inhibitions fall away and you begin calling their name, even if you're in Walmart or someplace like that, and looking about anxiously for your loved one. Well, uh, when you do finally find them, Initially, you as parents know this there's, this, there's this wave of relief. Thank you, Lord. And then there's immediately afterwards this, this anger. Why did you do that to us? How do you? You could have been kidnapped. Never, ever wander away without telling us. Blah, 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 and so on. So mingled relief and anger at that point. Exasperation. Exasperation. Uh, If you've experienced that yourself as parents, and if you've had children for any period of time, unless you have them chained to you, you will experience it. Children wander away. I was an expert at doing that. So much so that my parents had to tell my babysitters, he's going to try to ask you... I was on a baby leash, that's how bad I was. (laughs) He's going to tell you to let him off the leash. Whatever you do, don't do it, he's a liar. (laughs) But I always, oh please, please let me go, I promise I won't run. And as soon as they did, it's like the leprechaun, and I was gone. That's happened to most parents, I I think. But uh, if that has happened to you, you, you will have an insight into the way, of course, that Mary and Joseph felt when they realized that the boy Jesus was not traveling with them in the caravan going back to the town of Nazareth. And you remember, it took a grand total of three days to find him. This was before police. This was before cell phones. This was before even telegraphs or, or, or mail. Uh, while we can empathize with them, and we can understand very well Mary's statement in verse 48, we need to ask why it was that the Holy Spirit chose to include the story of these parents losing track of their child in the gospel. And how we can apply it to ourselves. What does it mean? And what should it tell us? Obviously the nature of the child in question. And the fact that it made its way into scripture. Should indicate to us that this is not simply intended to teach us. These things happen even in the best of families. Rather this is something that is intended to teach us lessons about the nature of Christ. And as you know. Christ is not only our Savior, He is the one whom we are to be imitating. And so we should be looking to see what it is that Christ teaches us by His actions. So, uh, first let's try to better understand what went on in these verses, and then let's secondly apply ourselves to what's really being taught uh, in these verses. So, Jews were commanded at multiple points, particularly Deuteronomy 16.16, to go to the place that the Lord would establish. First, uh, Shiloh, the tabernacle, and then later on the temple, after it was built by Solomon. They were instructed to go three times a year during the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and tabernacles. Those were the three. There were more feasts in the calendar than that, but those were the feasts that every adult male was expected to attend if he could make it. No matter where they were in the world, it was their duty to make their way back to Jerusalem and to offer the appointed sacrifices at the only place on earth where those sacrifices could take place, and that was the temple. And this is why, for instance, in Acts chapter 2, later on, obviously after the ascension of Christ, Jesus is filled to the brim with Jews from around the Mediterranean uh, when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church in Pentecost. It was a time of gathering, it was supposed to be a time of celebration, a time also when they were reminded, as we were reminded, when we gathered together on Sunday, that we're part of a body, that we weren't saved individually. You weren't saved to be, you know, one or two Christians, maybe meeting every now and then at Starbucks. You were supposed to be part of the body of Christ, and to know that. They were reminded that no matter where they lived, they were still part of the same covenant community. Now, many, unfortunately, did not observe the commands. They had all sorts of excuses, whether to live next door to Jerusalem or far away, for not actually going. But note this, despite relative poverty, Joseph and Mary faithfully observed the commands of God in the ceremonial law. Now, that is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that Christ is born into an observant family. Only then could he perfectly fulfill the righteous requirements of the law, his parents helping him and raising him and making sure that he was being immersed in the knowledge that he needed. They make this difficult trip, therefore, to Nazareth, Uh, from, sorry, Nazareth in the north of Galilee to Jerusalem in the south. Now the trip usually took longer than it needed to because most observant Jews would actually go around the coast. The quickest way is to go down the coast road because, you know, the way that uh, Israel is, it has uh, a rift valley surrounded by mountains. That's the Jordan River Valley. Uh, So the center, or the spine of Israel, we might say, is very rocky. It's difficult to traverse. Um, But there is a coastal plain that's easy to go down. Unfortunately, the coastal plain was filled with Samaritans at one point, and they did not want to pass through Samaria, so they would go around it, often crossing over the Jordan, and then coming back over it again. Um, And it's very likely that uh, his parents had done that. They used to go in a caravan for safety. Uh, Not only so they could take care of one another as they were traveling, but also because all of the Romans had done a very good job of making the world a safe place for travel. There were still bandits and 'er ne'er-do-wills. We remember the story of the Good Samaritan, who was beaten by robbers and left by the road. That's an example of what could happen if you were traveling by yourself. So they would travel in a large group. It also meant that you would have the benefit of camels and so on, and, and perhaps a donkey or two to carry your goods. So at either 12 or 13 years of age, every Jewish boy became what uh, was called a son of the law, and keeping the ceremonial law with its requirements became obligatory to them. Before, the young did not necessarily have to, although they often did have to go to the feasts, but after they reached a certain age, they had to go to the feasts. It was of that age, where they made their first trip, sometimes, to Jerusalem, if they lived that way. Now, Jesus in this narrative is 12. Now, scholars argue all the time over whether it was 12 or 13 was the age at which you became a bar mitzvah, that is, son of the commandments. Uh, I tend to think it was probably 12. Today, it's 13 in the Jewish community. But, regardless, boys at this age, they're put under a course of, excuse me, of instruction at the local synagogue. They begin the process of fasting on a regular basis. They are expected to be in attendance at the public worship on the Sabbath day in the synagogue. And besides that, they would be set upon learning a trade. Already, that would have begun, usually in an apprenticeship. But now it became very serious, because very soon they would be expected to find a spouse and look for a family. People got married much earlier than they do today, although it was expected that a boy would already be established in a trade. Normally, you would never have a young man going out and seeking the hand of a young woman if he did not already have an income, if he was not already prepared to set up his, uh, his household, or if he was not already part of a family business, like, for instance, the disciples were. We know, uh, for instance, that at the time when Christ and his disciples were traveling, at the very least, Peter was already married, and he had been part of the family fishing business for some time. It was that process that was necessary of moving from childhood to manhood. They put away childish things and they moved into maturity. Unfortunately, that's kind of broken down in our society. But back then, they understood the importance of it. Well, accordingly, our Lord is taken up for the first time to Jerusalem at the Passover season, and that was the chief, the most important of the three festivals that they were supposed to attend. After the feast was completed, there were seven days. After the feast was completed, after the sacrifices have been made, and the religious obligations were over, Mary and Joseph pack up their things and they return. Now, one of the things that you will find is that parents seldom lose track of an only child. They only have one. Mary and Joseph had additional children. This is another, it's, it's incidental, but it's just another evidence that Jesus was the firstborn and he was the only son of God in the family but nonetheless that he did have brothers and sisters. So they get the family together and they return with this group of Nazarenes, including all the relatives that they came with. They go back to Nazareth. But Jesus doesn't. Jesus lingers in the temple in order to converse with these teachers, these rabbis, who would have been under the beautiful portico's teaching. And he not only listens to them. He discusses the scriptures with them. He inquires into their meaning and their application. And everybody is amazed that this young man, who is obviously from the sticks in Galilee, they could have told by his accent, it would be like somebody from Maine uh, being in the middle of North Carolina. Everybody would recognize the accent. Oh yeah. Anyway, so they would go on and uh, they would think to themselves, who is this kid who is so learned? They were amazed in speaking with him, but that's where he was. He was listening to the teachers, asking them questions, and that was the classic method of biblical instruction. We have switched over to this, long ago we switched over to it, to this awful German process of lecture instruction. I teach, you absorb, then you regurgitate, and we move on to the next thing. There's no to and fro. The ancient world uh, either adopted the Socratic method Uh, Which is that wonderful process of asking questions of the students so that they might find the answers themselves as you lead them in follow-up questions and so on. Or that tutorial process by which you discuss things. You uh, try to, to chew on them together. You get to the, uh, to the heart of the matter. So the, the person who is being instructed is, is learning these things. You get a chance to, to think. And I hope that you have those moments, particularly in Bible study and so on, where you can ask those questions. And you can be as iron sharpening iron when you're talking to other people and learning about the scriptures together. Uh, that is, I believe, the right form of instruction for that small group setting. Now, they're all amazed and how much he knows about the scriptures. Uh, and he obviously wasn't just being blessed, he is blessing them as well. But the question then comes how could the Son of God learn from these scholars? Now, we need to remember this. Since this is something that's going to be vitally important for the rest of the gospel. Jesus is God incarnate. Yes, he is 100% God, and he is also 100% man. What did he do in becoming incarnate? It's not that he set his Godhead aside and, and ceased to be divinity. What did he do? He added our nature to his Okay? He added a true body and a reasonable soul, becoming therefore the God-man, quite literally. And as far as his humanity is concerned, like you and I, he needed to eat, he needed to drink, he, uh, he grew in grace, he grew in understanding, his uh, his. Uh, understanding of things, his language and so on, was was opened up. It's not the case that Jesus, as a three-year-old, was running around forming you know perfect sentences in the original Hebrew. Oh, mother and father, would it be possible for me to you know drink that kind of thing? You know, the, uh, when they're younger and so on. Jesus grows according to his human nature in l- wisdom, learning, and also stature. So one of the things that I, I want you to set aside. Is any of these Gnostic or weird ideas uh, about his childhood, that he was in some way weirdly, strangely different? I mean, he would have been weirdly, strangely different in the sense that he was the only kid in town who wasn't sinning on a regular basis. But um, it, it's not like one of the things that, that... There are certain hymns that drive me crazy. Uh, one of them is Away in a Manger. And specifically, the line that drives me up the wall is, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. I mean, can you imagine this? The children is awakened by the child, rather. This baby is awakened by cattle, and he doesn't cry. Mary would have been like, Joseph, he never cries. He never cries. You know, and Of course he cried. When his diaper, how does a baby communicate to you, hey, my diaper is full. Excuse me, full diaper here. You know, they cry. How do they communicate to you that they're hungry? They cry. After a while, you get used to the different cries indicating you know, that and, and certain smells will let you know what's going on with them. But he was like us in every way. It is not a sin for a baby to cry. It is in no way a sign of fallen nature. For someone to cry. Well, Jesus grew in his human nature. He did not grow in his divine nature, obviously. And that will be important in understanding these verses. And indeed throughout the gospel. But it explains to us how the Son of God could not know something that the Father knows. The day of his return, for instance. But the parents... Anyway, moving on. The parents discover Jesus is missing after one day of travel. So they're one day out. And they have to therefore return to Jerusalem. That would have taken another day, one day back, and then they have to seek him for a day until they finally find him. So he was missing for a grand total of three days. Now, the story implies very strongly they should have known where he would be all along. They should have known that he would have been in the temple precincts doing his father's will. This was an indication not of disobedience upon the part of Christ. And this is important. Your calling, brothers and sisters, my calling, and par excellence, Christ's calling, is to do the will of the Father, not the will of, the ma- of men, when it goes against the will of the Father, when it interferes with the will of the Father. So, for instance, we, uh, in praying, we are now looking at uh, situations in the Western world where we're being instructed, do not preach the gospel, do not preach the exclusivity of Christ, do not call sin, sin. Can we obey those commandments? No, we cannot. Why? Because the Father has told us we must do all of those things. And so obedience to man would be disobedience to God. And that is our highest calling. When you are called upon, it doesn't matter what authority calls upon you to do it. If it's a husband, if it's a commander, if it's a president. If they call upon you to do something that goes directly against God's word, you must say no. Or if they call upon you to neglect God's word, you must say no. Jesus here is obeying the higher calling of his father. Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? I must be about engaging in the work that he set for me. It had not probably occurred to Jesus in his human nature that his parents would be worried about him. Now, why? Well, they knew who he was. You remember Mary had kept these things in her heart. They'd been visited by an angel. He was the result of of, uh, the Immaculate Conception. He was uh, not the Immaculate Conception. He was uh, the result of the um, the Immaculate conception is a false uh, theory regarding Mary that's held by Roman Catholics. He, was, uh, he was, she was with child by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he is the Messiah, the Son of God, Simeon and Anna. Last week we saw how clear that was. And Christ certainly knew who he was. So here we have this wonderful opportunity. And he seizes it. And he goes about doing his father's business. And he's engaged uh, in the concerns of his Heavenly Father. He's engaged in the things of revelation and of knowledge and of service to God. And frankly, I mean, Christian parents, how many of us would have been really, really upset that our child wanted to be engaged in more theological instruction, more (laughs) engagement in these things? Ah, oh, he wants to go to Sunday school again. <laughs> I mean, that, thats simply not the case. So when Mary says, "Your father and I have sought you anxiously," in verse 48, the reply of Jesus is, uh, it, 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 "It's not a rebuke; it's a gentle reminder." God, and not Joseph, godly, godly man that he is, is my father, and the work that I'm intended to do is my father's will and redemption. And it must have, I mean, it would have disappointed them that uh, his job was going to be carpentry in the same way that it probably disappointed Peter's parents tremendously that he had left the field of fishing, that he would not be taking up that work. Now, this is the first of many places where Jesus points out that worldly concerns have to be subordinated to his mission. He didn't come to live the life of a poor Galilean, Christ was born to do the will of the Father and to accomplish all that the Father had set for him, even at the greatest possible cost. He had come into the world to redeem sinners. That was what he was put on earth for. And his parents, who are slow of heart to understand, don't quite get what Jesus is saying to them. Our Savior, whose heart is is full of compassion, simply then returns to Nazareth and we read, uh, that he is subject to them. He's subject to them to the point at which it is his time to make himself public. At 30, that was the age, incidentally, at which uh, somebody would enter into the high, pri- uh, high priesthood. At that point, Jesus begins that, that great work of, the be- of um, redemption. But up until then, he is obedient to his parents, and uh, we have indications that for a while he did indeed enter into Joseph's trade as a carpenter. And after the death of Joseph, that he became the primary supporter of the family. So it shouldn't surprise us also that even that that training as a carpenter was used in his ministry. C.S. Lewis said rightly that anything that you bring to the Christian faith is used. It's not lost. It's not, not, not worthwhile. Uh, and Jesus, the carpenter who built houses and who made agricultural implements would make allusions then later on to houses being built on rock or sand. He would have made allusions to sowing and plowing and so on he did in his parables. And all of these things that he's doing, even as a carpenter, what are they doing? They are serving to prepare him for his later ministry. Nothing is lost. So, incidentally, in verse 51, where we read, Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject to them, but his mother kept all these things in her heart. That's also the strongest indication that we have that Mary was Luke's primary source for information about the childhood of Christ. Luke asked her, tell me about Jesus as a boy, and she probably had tons of anecdotes. Luke had, however, only one large scroll, both sides, to write on. And so he did not include most of the things that she told him. Instead, he chose to include this anecdote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus grows after this, and he, uh, he grows and in increases in stature, and he is perfect and sinless at every stage in his human development, so that the words of verse 52, that he increased in favor with men, that shouldn't surprise you. Because of his perfect obedience, Jesus, the second Adam, would have been very pleasing to God, his Father, and to those who were around him as well, unless, of course, they were given over to sin and wanted him to join in. Obedience in the midst of sinners is something that irritates the living daylights out of them. You may have uh, experienced that yourself. And uh, later, when Jesus begins his public ministry at about uh, age 30, because men love darkness, Christ's proclamation of the truth, his exposing of the truth, his shedding of light, will make him more and more unpopular. You will see that. So, what are some of the applications that we can derive from this account? I am going to suggest two. And the first is primarily aimed at those of you who have not yet reached adulthood. Christ's desire, let me tell you, kids, young men, young women, Christ's desire to be about his Father's work as soon as he could be should be your desire as well. As Christ, your Master, thought first and foremost always about how is it that I'm going to go about fulfilling the will of my Father? That should be from childhood your desire as well. Now, because of our fallen nature, our fallen tendency is to say that we want to spend all of our time playing or doing our own will, or preparing perhaps sometimes for worldly work. And those things aren't bad in moderation. It's not a bad thing to play, unless that's all we're doing. It's not a bad thing to be preparing for a worldly trade. That is a good thing, as long as we're doing them in moderation. But believe me on this, even though those things are important, they should be of secondary importance to you. Secondary importance, and if you don't believe me, understand that's not just what I'm saying to you. that's what Jesus showed us. And it's also what He said. If you will turn with me, uh, you're in Ma- Mar- Ugh, you're in Luke. <laughs> turn back to Matthew. Turn to Matthew 6:23, specifically. And here, Jesus is going to reorient. Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for after all these things the Gentiles seek. But your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And that has been my experience. Uh, If you seek first the kingdom of God, the other things will take care of themselves. They really will. Now, at best, worldlings, that is natural people who aren't interested in Christ, aren't interested in the Bible, they view religion as a value added. It's something perhaps, yes, we can understand there's a value to religion uh, thrown into orbit around the really important things. But That's that's not what Christ says. Christ says that your faith Your connection with Him and through Him to your Heavenly Father should be the most important priority in your life because upon it, your eternal life will depend. Remember that this period of our existence, this period of probation is the shortest period of our existence. It is over quicker than we could ever think. And sometimes it's the case that even children end up standing before the Father, before they ever expected to. So you, as Christians, young men, young women, remember that spiritual matters are of first importance. And please understand this. After years and years of counseling, even if the Bible didn't tell me this, I would know it. If you do not get your spiritual house in order, I guarantee you that you will never get your earthly house in order. The two run together. And also... Understand spirituality is an aid to understanding, an aid to wisdom, and an aid to living in a fallen world. Let me give you an example of that. B.B. Warfield, who was known as the Lion of Princeton, the, uh, he had the chair of apologetics at Old Princeton Seminary, had the Westminster Shorter Catechism, no lie, <laughs> memorized by the time he was six years old. All right? I labored hard to get the Westminster Shorter Catechism down in my early 30s, and because I didn't keep up with it, I I quickly began to lose it. He had it by the time he was six. And then he had the larger catechism, and those of you who come in the evening evening know how long (laughs) the answers, the questions and answers in the larger catechism are. He had the larger catechism with its proof texts memorized by the time he was 16. And so it's small wonder that he went on uh, to be one of Princeton Seminary's greatest theologians. But the value of theological study goes far beyond preparing you for useful service in God's kingdom in the church. It prepares a man to face everything or a woman to face everything that life in a fallen world might throw at them. Now, Warfield wrote uh, the following brief article on the value of the Shorter Catechism, and I I strongly suspect the army officer and the story that he tells was Warfield's own brother, who was stationed in San Francisco at the time of the great earthquake there in 1906. Uh, 1906. That particular earthquake uh, almost entirely destroyed the city. It broke gas mains, water mains, and so on. Fires broke out everywhere. There was rioting, and there was looting. And Warfield writes this, what is the indelible mark of the Shorter Catechism? We have the following bit of personal experience from a general officer of the United States Army. He was in a great western city at a time of intense excitement and violent rioting. The streets were overrun daily by a dangerous crowd. One day he observed approaching him a man of singularly combined calmness and firmness of Mien, whose very demeanor inspired confidence. So impressed was he with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he passed he turned to look back at him, only to find that the stranger had done the same. On observing his turning, the stranger at once came back to him, and touching his chest with his forefinger, demanded without preface, what is the chief end of man? (laughs) On receiving the countersign, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, said he, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by your looks. Why, (laughs) that was just what I was thinking of you, was his rejoinder. It is worthwhile, writes Warfield, to be a shorter catechism boy. They grow to be men, and better than that, they are exceedingly apt to grow to be men of God, so apt that we cannot afford to have them miss the chance of it, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. The second application is this. It is that in pursuing the will of your father, you should, like Christ, go beyond the ordinary in terms of your religious performance. Joseph and Mary had fulfilled the letter of the law in going to Jerusalem and keeping the feast as God instructed. But they too would have been far better served if, like their son, they had lingered in the temple courts to hear further teaching. It would have behooved them. Now, reflecting on that, sadly you and I know that many Christians don't even fulfill the basic obligations. They don't go to church on Sunday. Uh, One of the things that always astounds me is that so many Christians will make excuses for not going to church that they would never in a million years think of using on their employer. Oh, sir, I looked outside and I think it might rain today. Not going to make it. What? (laughs) Get in your car. uh, It's ridiculous the degree to which we give... Christ, what is left rather than what he deserves. And the the thing is, who's impoverished when we don't take every advantage that we're given religiously? And the answer is, we are. You and I are given advantages in this nation that our brothers and sisters in other nations could only dream of. I remember once seeing a video of, of Chinese Christians receiving their first complete copies of the Bible. Within the entire church, they only had bits and pieces of Bibles, and those were, those were treasures to the people who had them. A missionary came in and brought in an entire suitcase filled with paperback Bibles in Chinese, and they were crying and weeping and praising God that they had been given finally the complete Word of God. That should be us whenever we come to the... I mean, not crying and weeping and wailing, but... There should be joy, unspeakable, at the opportunity that we have to enter into an opportunity to glory God. You were made for worship. It should be something that you want to do. It should never be a drudge. Oh, I don't want to go. I, I felt, uh, I will, I still do. I felt terrible this morning. But I wanted to be here. I, I wanted to have an opportunity to speak to you. And not just because the pulpit would be empty but because I love to be with the people of God. I love the people of God, but more importantly, I love the God of the people. And I want to be in his presence. Where would I love to die? I would love to die like David Livingston died, where he died on his knees praying to God. One moment, he was addressing the throne of grace, and the next moment, he was before the throne of grace. What a wonderful transition. And I hope it's not the case that God has to go, okay, okay, is he ever going to, this is the moment, there you go, finally. You know, it would be wonderful. So be zealous. Not just to fulfill your gospel duties, but to do everything that you can to be often in the presence of God amongst his people, both with your family and by yourself and in the corporate worship of God. Be reading and growing and and always have at least one edifying book that you're going through. That's one of the questions that I ask on family visitations. What are you reading? And I don't mean just the Bible. Yes, every Christian should be reading the Bible every day. You really should. But also, what other things are you reading? Are you reading Christian biographies? Are you reading systematic theologies? Are you reading just edifying books of Christian instruction or sermons? Get those things into you. They will do you good and they will fit you for heaven, as the Puritans put it. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm not saying do these things that you might be saved. I'm saying do these things because you are saved. And if you are not saved already... Well, then the first thing you need to do is get some time on your knees and cry out to God and ask him for that salvation that you have been running away from. Come near to God and he will draw near to you. Throw yourself upon the mercy of Christ and you will not be disappointed. Trust me in that. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you so much for the example of Christ. Lord, he was so diligent to serve you well. We know we will never be able to serve as well as he did. But we ask, O Lord, that we would follow His example as imperfectly as we might. Let us do it every day, taking up our cross and following after Jesus, our Savior. We pray all these things in Jesus' holiness.